Turn, if you would, to the 21st chapter of the book of Matthew. My wife is also out of town, so my daughter had to pick out my clothes this morning. (laughs) What can I say? It was also a difficult week for my daughter and I. We started play practice again. You would think I would learn, wouldn't you? Last week we started chapter 21. Chapter 21 is a break in the book of Matthew, a transition. Jesus and the disciples have entered Jerusalem. The next, whatever it is, five chapters, six chapters, are going to be the final week of Jesus' life before the resurrection, before the crucifixion and the resurrection. We're going to talk about his increasing conflict with the Jewish religious leaders that is ultimately going to lead to his death. We saw this last week, and we're going to see even more of it this week, and pretty soon we're just going to see a whole bunch of it. So last week, Jesus enters Jerusalem. We have the triumphant entry, what we refer to today as Palm Sunday, where they recognized him as the Messiah for a little moment. He then goes in to cleanse out the temple because the uh, locals, the religious leaders, are using it as a money-making machine. And he says, this is not what the church is for. This is not what the temple is for. It is is to be a house of prayer, and you have turned it into a den of thieves. So then we started the discussion about the fact that he left town to go walking, And he saw a fig tree, and he was hungry. He wanted something to eat. And the fig tree, while it had its leaves, it had no fruit. And Jesus cursed the fig tree, and it died. Hmm. So the disciples say, wow, what happened? And that's kind of where we stopped last week. We stopped, and we had a brief discussion about the fact that There are those who believe the fig tree somewhat represents the Jewish community of that generation. That Jesus had kind of said, enough, you have rejected me, it's over. This generation is over. Now, we know, and we have to remind ourselves of this because we're going to talk about it some more in just a moment, we know that God has given promises to the Jewish nation, and those promises will be fulfilled. We see in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. He hasn't cast them aside. There are those who seriously believe that the Jewish community had their chance, they blew it, and they're done. And now the church is the new, well, chosen people. Well, we believe that the church is important, but we also believe that God's promises to the Jewish nation will be fulfilled when they acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. We're not getting past that point, though. So, we stopped kind of mid-paragraph, so I'm going to read the whole paragraph, and we're going to cover the second half of it. Starting in verse 18, in the morning he was returning to the city. 
He became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith... And do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This passage, talking about faith and prayer, is both one of the greatest promises that we are given in the Scripture and also one of the more difficult for most of us to handle. I mean, do not raise your hands because I know what the answer is to this question. How many of you have ever prayed for something and it didn't happen? You prayed for some child, you prayed for some grandchild, you prayed for somebody that was sick and they got healed or they didn't. Was it because you didn't have enough faith. What is faith? I've told the story in here before. When we lived in Virginia, we had some good friends. And the lady had a good friend who died of cancer. Very young, died of cancer. And to the day, until the day she died, her husband told her, the reason you're dying is because you do not have enough faith. That is a horrible thing to say. A horrible thing to say. But doesn't this say, if you have enough faith, everything you ask for in prayer will be given to you. Is that what it says? Let's take this apart and look at it piece by piece. First off, we have to remind ourselves about what faith is and what faith isn't. We talked about this several weeks ago. I know that because I still have a bookmarker in my Bible back over to Hebrews, where when you're talking about faith, you always end up in Hebrews chapter 11. Because Hebrews chapter 11 is all about what faith is, and then it gives a list of people who live their lives by faith. And in verse 1, we have the closest thing in the, in the Scripture to a definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their con commendation, not condemnation, commendation. They were commended because of their faith. What does this mean? It means that God has promised us certain things. God says, this is true. And faith says, because God told me it is true, I will believe and I will operate on the assumption that what God says is going to happen is in fact going to happen. If you remember, we talked about this when Peter was in the boat, there was a storm, and they look out and there's Jesus walking across the water. Remember, we had this discussion. My great 
thought that I was trying to figure out, you know, did Jesus walk up and down the waves or did he just walk straight through them? I've always wondered that. I have no idea. <laughs> but Peter says, if it's you, can I come too? And Jesus says, sure, come on. Jesus, who is God, had told Peter, you can walk on the water. And Peter stepped out of the boat and started walking on the water. Wow! Until he took his eyes off Jesus and onto the waves, and then he sank like a rock. What is faith? Believing that if God tells you to get out of the boat and walk, you can get out of the boat and walk. What faith isn't is just wishful thinking. We begin to think that if I want something really, really, really bad, it's going to happen. And that's faith. And I've got to mentally convince myself that something is true because if I doubt it a little bit, it's not going to happen. No. It has nothing to do with us constructing things in our mind. It's us trusting God to do what God says He's going to do. So if God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, and you're in the dark night of the soul, and you're wondering whether God is really there or not, faith says, He said He was here. He's here. I may not see Him, I may not feel Him, I may not hear Him, but faith says, He promised and I believe. He promised and I believe. While I'm in Hebrews, we've got to uh, read verse 6 because it's my favorite verse in, well, the Bible. And without faith it is impossible to please Him. Forever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek after Him. What is faith? Faith is resting in the promises of God. Believing that what God says is going to happen is going to happen. Back to Matthew chapter 21. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken and thrown into the sea, it will happen. This phrase, be, you know, telling the mountain to move, is actually, I have read, a Hebrew uh, idea, a metaphor of being able to do impossible things. I mean, let's face it, you're there and over there is a mountain and given the total uh, absence of earth moving equipment that we have today, for you to say that mountain can be moved is an impossible thing. It's not just difficult, it's impossible. So when the Jewish community would say something is like moving a mountain, it would be like saying it's impossible. Now, remember several lessons ago when the rich young man came to Jesus and asked, what good things must I do to be saved? And Jesus said this, that, the other, and finally the man left. And Jesus made the comment that it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples go, well, it's impossible for anybody. And Jesus says, you're right, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What things does God do 
that by any earthly measure are impossible. Well, we'll talk about one immediately. It's called salvation. If I tell you that in order to be saved, you have to never break the law of God from the day you're born till the day you die in thought, in speech, in action. You can never do it. That, by the way, is impossible. And every one of us is old enough to know that. You know, we've gone through a couple of seconds where we didn't sin and we think, wow, aren't I good? And then our spouse shows up. No, I didn't say that. With humans, that's impossible. But guess what? With God, all things are possible. What is faith? Faith is looking at the promises of God and saying, I believe that you can do what you've promised to do. Now, it is interesting because like lots of things in the Christian life, faith is a gift from God and it is something we are to work at. That's strange. We are told that faith is given to us and then we are told to grow in our faith. Great, uh, faith is not just a thing that you either have it or you don't, although it is possible to have it or not. It is something that you have and then you grow in your faith because the scripture talks repeatedly about people who are weak in faith. And in fact, we are told to show deference to people who are weak in their faith. We as a community, remember in the book of Romans, it talks about that. You who are strong in your faith are to look after and not use your grace as an excuse to do things that puts them in harm's way. So we are told to grow in our faith. How do you grow in your faith? <gasps> By exercising your faith. Wait a minute. If I don't have it, I can't grow in it. Yeah, you can. You have this much, and when you exercise that much, you have that much, and when you exercise that much, you have that much, and when you exercise... I mean, we look at the life of Abraham. Ultimately... God is going to ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son, the son that he had been waiting for all of his life, and God says, sacrifice him. And we're told that by faith, Abraham was ready to do it. But God didn't start there with Abraham. God started over here. Go someplace. Okay, I'll go. And day by day, Abraham grew in faith because he responded to the promises of God that had been given to him at that point in time. And that's all we're called to do. How much faith do you have? Probably more than you think. But what happens is, what did this verse say? If you have faith and do not doubt. We talked about this when we talked about Peter walking on the water. What destroys our faith? We look at the world around us. We look at the storm and not at the Savior. And when we do that, we sink. Always, always. The moment I start looking at my circumstances and saying, you know, God, 
I know you promised you're going to take care of me, but this makes no sense at all. I'm going to go read a self-help book because I don't believe that what you tell me will happen will happen. And we begin to hedge our bets. We begin to think, okay, I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and we are doubting God and His Word. We are demonstrating a lack of faith. Jesus says, if you have faith and do not doubt, you can accomplish things that seem to be impossible because with God, all things are possible. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Huh. We started with that, right? How many of you have prayed for something that didn't happen. If that's not a true statement for you, you're probably not praying enough. <laughs> this passage has always bothered me because I would love to be able to tell you anything you pray for, it's going to happen exactly why, the way you want it to happen. But we're all old enough to know that's not going to happen. You know? Mark Twain said, you know, when he was sailing toward Europe, this way, when he was sailing toward Europe, he says, everybody on the ship is praying for winds to blow this direction. But everybody on the ship going the other direction is praying for winds to go the other direction. <laughs> Who wins? Who wins? And the answer is, God wins. Let me let you in on a little secret. We talked about this actually just a couple of weeks ago. It just keeps coming up. And it's going to come up in about five chapters in a big way. So we'll just cheat and we'll skip ahead. Jesus is in the garden praying before he's arrested. And he says, God, if it be possible, let this cup, this path that I'm on, be taken from me. Full stop. Let's just stop right there. That's his prayer. Why is he praying that? Because he's smart enough to know that he's going to die a miserable death. And Jesus, though being God, is also human, and he had no more interest in being crucified than you or I would. He is not a masochist. He has no desire to get beaten and have thorns thrown on his head and spit upon and nailed to a cross. He had no desire to do that. And his prayer was, if it is possible, let's go to plan B. But his prayer didn't end there. The next sentence was, but not my will, but thy will be done. Let me let you in a secret. There's a prayer that is always going to be answered. And what is that? Not my will, but thy will be done. Huh. What would allow us to pray that prayer? Faith. Why? Because faith says God's will is always better than my will. But wait a minute, I might die. Yeah? We've had this discussion over and over and over again in this class. 
I hate to break it to you, but unless the Lord returns, you're going to die. Sorry. I hate, I mean, I'm sorry if I broke your bubble. You're going to die, and God will take care of you. Death does not mean you lost. And we have to understand that. Death does not mean that you lost. It just means God had another plan for you. God will allow Stephen to be stoned to death, and he will use his martyrdom to spread the message of the gospel to all of the known world. God's will will be done. Then what good is it praying, God do what you're going to do anyway? Isn't that what it sounds like? Because God is working at you to get you to the point that you have faith to believe that God's way is best. And how do we demonstrate that? God, thy will be done. Now, we started this with the comment, if my prayer is not answered, is it a demonstration that I don't have enough faith? Well, I'll just get the first obvious answer out of the way. It is possible you don't have enough faith. I mean, it is. You haven't exercised the faith you have. You haven't responded to God the way you ought. And you have not developed your faith. On multiple occasions, Jesus turned to the disciples and looked at them and said, Why do you have so little faith? What was he telling them? I've told you all these things and you're ignoring me. Guess what? God has told us all these things and we're ignoring him because we don't have enough faith. What do we do in that situation? We pray to God for faith. We pray to God that we would not be distracted by the storms, that we would pay attention to what God has told us, and we live on the basis of what he has told us. Now, I should add at this point, there's nothing in here that says this is easy. Nothing at all. We live in a world that bombards us with ideas that are counter to the Word of God. We are saturated with them. It is easy to not pay attention to the promises of God. What is difficult is to trust that God will accomplish what he has promised. So, answer number one, it is possible that you don't have enough faith and you need to pray to God that you would have more. Now, let me let you in on a little secret though. The way he is going to build more faith in you is putting you in situations that require you to exercise the faith that he has given you. <laughs> Don't you hate that when that happens? But that's the way it works. Right now, in this little situation, are you going to trust me or not? Somebody does you wrong, and you're going to react and let them know what you think of them. And the Spirit says, trust God. <sighs> okay. And we trust God. Little thing, which leads to the next thing, which leads to the next thing, 
which leads to a life of faith. So, it is possible that we don't have enough faith. But it's also possible that God has a bigger plan in mind, and we have to learn to live according to his plan and not ours. Why does one person get cancer and we pray for them and they are healed? You prayed for me when I had my bout with cancer. And guess what? I got healed. Somebody else, they don't get healed. Does that mean that there's not a... No. It just means that God has a plan and we need to live according to his plan. So... If you're praying for somebody, pray for them with every bit of passion you can. Be persistent in your prayer. Be consistent in your prayer. But at the end of the day, be willing to say, but not my will, but thy will be done. It's a great promise. It is not a club to beat people over the head with. Verse 23, and when he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So remember the picture. This is the general picture of what's happening. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. They have the triumphant entry. He leaves town for the night, about two miles away, comes back in the next morning, cleanses the temple. He does some healing. He does some teaching. He goes back out. He comes back in. He goes back out and he comes back in. That's the general pattern that we're seeing. So he is sitting in the temple, probably on the steps out front. Okay, big steps. That's where he is. And he is teaching the people. The religious leaders are sitting here going, who the heck is this guy? I mean, remember, he's the country bumpkin from up north somewhere, you know, around the Sea of Galilee where the country bumpkins live. And we're the sophisticated people living in Jerusalem. We have the good schools. We have the good credentials. We have the respect of the people. We are leading things. And this country bumpkin is... Performing miracles, cleansing the temple. Uh, the people are shouting hosannas as he comes into town. Who gave him the right to do this? Who gave him the authority? Now, let's stop and just give a little bit of kindness to them, okay? Just a little bit. At some point, he's going to put that aside, but for right now, it is not an illegitimate question. I mean, by what authority are you teaching these things? By what authority am I standing up here right now teaching y'all? Well, I, like all the staff members of this church and everybody else that ministers as part of this church, are under the authority of the elders of this church. And that's not bad. That's good. We are called to be under authority. I sign a piece of paper that says I will not teach anything that violates the doctrinal statement of this church. It's kind of interesting, actually. It doesn't actually say you have to believe that. It just says you won't teach against it. <laughs> no, we're not going there. 
Why? Because they are responsible to God for what happens in this church. And that's good. And that's okay. So if I say something heretical, I get a call. Did you really say, well, you sort of, yeah, okay. Then. And trust me, it's happened. <laughs> and that's good. That's good that somebody is watching out for what is being taught. Because the moment that doesn't exist, you start falling into the world of cults, where you have a teacher or a leader who is under nobody's authority at all. So they come to Jesus and they say, by whose authority are you doing this? Now, what answer were they looking for? Well, I don't think they were looking for any answer at all. Okay, I think they were looking for, well, nobody, so they could kick him out. But the answers they would have accepted would be they went, that he had gone to a certain person's school and he had the right degree and he had studied under this rabbi and this grand poopah rabbi and he had his stamp of approval and this guy said, I'm okay. That's the kind of thing they were looking for. So they come to him and they say, by whose authority are you doing this? Jesus answered them. Or I guess I should say he didn't answer them, but that's in a moment. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Simple question. John the Baptist was out in the wilderness baptizing people. Huge crowds came to him to be baptized. And we're told that the religious leaders would kind of watch what was going on. And he had choice words for them. Brood of vipers. More of that, that in a couple of weeks. So Jesus says, you ask me a question, I'll ask you a question. You answer my question, I'll answer your question. Was John's baptism from God or from man? It's really an either-or question. Okay? Flip a coin, give Jesus an answer. And they discussed it among themselves. Here's the picture, okay? Jesus is sitting here talking to a crowd. They're all scattered around the stairs. Here comes this group of religious leaders. They come up to Jesus and they say, by whose authority? And I assume they're doing it loudly. You know, they want the people to know we're in charge here. You know, it's not like let's take him aside and have a discussion with him. No, they want the people to know we're in charge. So they said, whose authority are you doing this? And Jesus asks his question and they come over here in a huddle. And this part's quiet. Okay? Psst. What did he just ask? These are the smartest religious people in existence at this point in time. These are all the PhD students there are at the time. And they discuss it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven... 
That's answer one. There's only two answers, right? If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? If John the Baptist is in fact from God, why didn't we follow him? We're from God, we believe. If he's from God, we have to follow him. But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd. Remember that phrase. For they all hold that John was a prophet. John was a great guy. The people loved him. I mean, at the end, he was a martyr. The Romans killed him. If anything will make you be loved by the Jewish community, it's the fact that the Romans killed you, right? So what do we say? If we answer A, we're in trouble. If we answer B, we're in trouble. So what do we answer? Good politicians here. And they answer Jesus, we do not know. We don't know. Question. Should they have known? I mean, either way, whichever answer you want, should you, should they have known? I mean, this guy was out there baptizing people. Shouldn't they have investigated and say, yes, he is, or no, he isn't? They should have known an answer. There's not a answer C. Well, there is an answer C, because that's what they did. He may be from God, but we're not going to pay attention to him. That's the answer that they're going to end up with. So they tell Jesus, we don't know. Now, I have a little quirk in my thinking at times, okay, in that I like taking different verses that make no sense together and putting them together. As we approach Christmas time, every year on Christmas Eve, we do our birthday cake for Jesus. Okay, you know, you have the cake, it's got all the decorations. Each of the decorations means something. There's a Bible verse that goes with it. Okay, so over the years we have done this numerous times. And one of the verses that we look at is in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verse, 7, uh, verse 18, which says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's a verse we use all the time. But the first phrase of it has always struck me. God is telling us, come let us reason together, says the Lord. So here's the picture. God is telling you, come here, let's talk this thing through. Let's reason together about what ought to be done in this particular situation. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus and the religious leaders? Here is Jesus standing right here, God. And here are the religious leaders reasoning, discussing among themselves. Where's God? Right over there. You get the picture? Why is it that when we have a major decision in our lives, we go reason together amongst ourselves and we exclude God who is standing right there? Why didn't they go to God and say, 
I don't know. What do you think? Because they didn't want the answer. They didn't want the answer. Why do we reason among ourselves when we should be reasoning with God? Because we don't want God's answer. Why do we not want God's answer? Because we don't have faith to believe that God an God's answer is the best. So, they were reasoning, they were talking among themselves. Two possible answers, both answers cause trouble. Now, the second answer about he's just, from, uh, uh, just a man would get them in trouble with the crowd. We're going to see this throughout the Scripture, not just here, but throughout the whole Scripture. The moment you begin to worry that if I do, God's, do things God's way, the crowd's not going to like me, you're always going to follow the crowd and you're going to be in trouble. They were scared of the people. They weren't leading the people. They were scared of the people. So, they answer. We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You're not going to answer my question? And he kept his word and he said, I'm not going to tell you an answer to your question. Now, I am going to go out on a limb just a little bit because I want to answer the question. Because you know the answer to the question, right? Jesus knows the answer to the question. By what authority does Jesus do the things that he does? You ready for this? He's God. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And by Him, through Him, everything that is was created. Why does Jesus have the right to tell you what to do? Because He created you. He has the right as the Creator to tell you what to do. But I don't want to do it. Tough luck. What did you think I was going to say? Do you remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he stops talking and it says the people were astounded because he spoke as one who had authority. I'm, I would have been fascinated to just hear that, whatever it was, that tone, that selection of words, that whatever it is, that you listen to him and you go, this guy knows what he's talking about. Any authority that I have as a teacher comes from what's written in this book. And if I ever say something that's not written in this book, you need to tell me. I mean, I tell you, we're going, on, we're going to talk about this, and I tell you what, but I don't have the authority. I didn't write the book. The guy that wrote the book is standing with them, and they have the audacity to say, who gives you the right to talk? 
The question of authority is one of the biggest problems in our world today because we are convinced that I am the only one that has authority over me at any point in time. And if I relinquish any of that authority, I am just a slave and we don't want that. Well, in one sense, that might be true. Go to Romans chapter 6, and it basically tells you, you can be a slave of sin, or you can be a slave of God. Pick one. You are going to be under someone's authority. It is the authority of God, or it is the authority of sin. Pick one. God did not make you an autonomous human being with the right to determine your own destiny. Did God really tell you not to eat that fruit? Yeah. Why? If you eat that fruit, you will be like God. Woo, that sounds great. I'll eat the fruit. And all of our problems have come from that. Because we have chosen to do it our way and not God's way. When you read the scripture. I mean, I've told you before. I've read the sayings of Confucius. I've actually read it multiple times. I actually like it. When I read the sayings of Confucius, do I read it? Well, no. When I read the Bible, do I read it like the sayings of Confucius where I go through and I say, oh, I like that one. And that one, I like that one down there. Oh, I like that one too. For most of us, that's how we read the Bible. I mean, I've told you in here before, teaching certain passages. I don't like this passage. But guess what? I don't get to choose. Because God, Jesus, is the authority. And we have to accept that. <sighs> Why don't we accept that? Because we have little faith. We don't believe. We don't believe that what God says is true and that it is better to do things God's way. Those who have faith must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek after him. That's it. That's it. That is the entire Christian life is learning to live by faith. That's not a little side issue. That's it. And we do that when we acknowledge the authority authority of God and Christ to dictate how we live our lives. The religious leaders came to Jesus because they wanted to put him in his place. They wanted him to make some stupid comment so that they could blast him, so that they could get him away from the crowds, so that the crowds would love them and not him. And by the end of the week, that's where we're going to be. By the end of the week, he's going to be crucified. They're going to win for about three days. What we're seeing is Jesus in increasing conflict with the religious leaders. Now, I'm not going to say that he's come to Jerusalem to pick a fight, okay? 
I'm not sure I would say that Jesus would pick a fight with them. But we are at the point in his ministry where he's not going to run away from the fight. We talked about this at length different times through the book of Matthew. When times would get tough, he would go to, well, the other side of the Jordan River. He would go a little bit further north. He would tell people, don't tell people that I just healed you. Don't tell people that I just did this. He was kind of keeping a low profile. Low profile for having 10,000 people over for dinner. Okay? We're beyond that point. He is coming to Jerusalem to die. He has told the disciples. He has told them they're going to beat him. He has told them that he's going to die. And he has told them he's going to be resurrected. And that's why he's here. He is no longer going to put up with the religious leaders and their statements. So he does not answer their question, but he follows the question with two parables that talk about their failure to fulfill their mission as the leaders of God's chosen people. And we are out of time, so we will talk about those two parables next week. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help each of us to grow in our faith. I pray that each of us would study your word to learn what you would have us to do, and that by faith we would follow you and not the world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.